Hi, friends. Welcome to Lady Preacher. We are back this week with one of our most popular guests. If you notice, last week we did a repeat episode with Pastor Meredith Miller, and it has been one of our most downloaded episodes ever talking about little kids' big questions. And Meredith is back today because she has a new book coming out called Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kid Doesn't Have to Heal From. It's not just a parenting book, but it's about how to help children. And I think the inner child within us as well, learn about a God that focuses on love and grace and storytelling instead of rules, right? A lot of us are raised in a faith that's focused on following the rules and obeying things and punishment. And this is so much bigger than that. Meredith really focuses on building that relationship of the child and us too, getting to know who God is and who we are in God and in God's image. So I'm really excited to have Meredith back today. She is a pastor, a parent, and a writer. She has 20 years, over 20 years, experience in children's ministry and curriculum writing. And she and her husband in 2019 started Pomona Valley Church, which is a church that meets primarily on Zoom, but they also do dinner church, which is just really amazing. They really focus on being neighbors to one another, doing justice, eating, of course, and just being community together. I'm so grateful that Meredith has agreed to come back and be with us again. And I really hope that you get so much out of this conversation, whether you're a parent or a children's minister, or just a person wanting to grow deeper in your own faith and understand more of who God is outside of just obeying the rules. So my friends, it is with great pleasure that I reintroduce you to Pastor Meredith Miller. Hi, Meredith. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to be here. Your first episode was actually, it's the second most downloaded episode we have ever had. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So clearly wow. your message is needed. So I'm excited to have you back. <laughs> yes. Thank you. That's terrific. How fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for people who didn't listen to that first episode, the like, I don't know, three of us who haven't yet, tell us about who you are, you know, Let's put work to the side for a moment. Just who are you, Meredith? So I am a parent to a couple sweet boys who are on their summer vacation at the moment that you and I are recording here. Um, I am spouse to a man named Curtis that I met in grad school, and we are coming up on 15 years married. Um, I'm pastor of a little church with a group of friends that we started back in 2019 that made it through all that had to pivot for uh, health and safety. And now we're having dinner together slowly, but surely, um, which is fun. And we're on zoom the rest of the time also having fun. Um, I'm a crossing guard at my kid's school. So my, that job reactivates for me as of August 30th. And it's one of my very favorite routines in my morning. Um, and I am a mediocre CrossFitter. So good. I love that. I love that you love being a cross guard at your, it is 
Beautiful. It is amazing. It's the best because like you get to be the first representative of the day. And like, mm. I don't have to like talk, talk. I just say good morning. Right. So the part of me that's fundamentally an introvert is really kind of thrilled about that because I care about our community, but I kind of enjoy that the way I get to connect can be more um, quick like. And I just feel like so many families come in with all kinds of things. And it's just like one moment of being able to represent like we're fine. Like we care about you. We want you to have a good day, grown up and kid alike. And if I can just be like a kind of ambassador of like, I'm so glad you're here this morning. I'm so glad you made it um, in like a small way. It's just so fun. Yeah, that's so good. How many of us need that in our lives, right? That just little small, I think um, like coffee baristas function the same way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That like, that's why we love being regulars. Yes. Because the way that interaction feels with a familiar face, who's just like, good to see you again. See you next week. Like that yeah. is huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Just starts the day off on the right now. I love that. Okay. So now tell us a little more about your work. You mentioned you're a pastor of this church. How did you, how did you find yourself there? And my next question is, what do you love most about it? We found ourselves there bit by bit when we didn't plan for it because my background is largely mega churches of different sizes, um, largely with kids and family ministries. And most of that has been good on the whole. We had some hard churches along the way and stuff, but we kind of thought that model could work with the right context, you know, if you had a healthy version and so on. And that began to slip away from us, my husband and I. And uh -huh we increasingly didn't want to make that anymore. And we increasingly weren't sure it did work. And so we found ourselves coming home to Southern California because once we got thinking about the kind of church we would actually want to do or make now, it isn't the kind that gets like loads of funding from church planting networks and gets really big, really fast. We were really interested in what happened when you get around the table and when people bring stories and when the sermons get shorter. And a lot of what we do is not original. It's kind of pulling from things that we've seen be really good, things in the adult Sunday school tradition and things in the more formal liturgical spaces and so on. And we had friends that were kind of on board to help figure out how we made that something with enough structure and stability to be real, you know. And everyone needs a different amount of that. We sort of needed to know, like, we can pay our bills and feed our children. Yeah. And so that brought us home with people who kind of did that too. So it's been, it's been fun to watch a group be comfortable with all the things we don't do and all the ways we're not fancy. I find myself sometimes getting like nervous or self-conscious that like it's not going to be enough because I was so conditioned by... I mean, the last church I worked at had a literal full-time lighting director for lighting design for the auditorium. That was their whole 40-hour-a-week job was lighting design. Wow. And they were great at it. They were an excellent lighting designer. When we play music for like a moment of reflection, if we are in person for dinner, it is on like a JPL clip little speaker pod. Yeah. And I, I put it on on Spotify. And then I just stick that little speaker in the middle of the room. Yeah. That's real. Yeah. <laughs> and to watch a group be like, that's fine. I want to listen to the song. I want to think about the lyrics. Like, that's fine. And, uh -huh. you know, maybe someday we'll get a slightly better sound system. But people to collectively be like, we just want to follow Jesus. And we can do that with less. 
Um, and a lot of times what has come out of that less is like more space for our real regular lives when we're not putting so much energy into the thing we make in order to be an official church. We put that energy into the life we make to like be yeah. part of God's world. So that's been fun. Yeah. I love that. I was watching your Instagram stories the other day about you talking about how you're not an over-programmed church. And I was like, I need to take some notes because one of the things I hear from like some of the people at my small churches is church can feel like a job when it's a small church and you know, you're on like five different committees and all these different things. It's, it can be hard. And I think it's so beautiful what you do providing people a space to just like, we have a worship community, but also we have lives outside of that. And we don't need to like add one or five more things on top of it. Yeah. We're in a context in Southern California too, where like people ain't going to do what they don't want to do. So that's great if your church has like this awesome discipleship program and that if you came three times a week, you'd be the most like Jesus-y person on earth. But like, yeah, they ain't going to do that, right? Uh -huh. Like if if it's a good day for the beach or hike or brunch, <laughs> like, and we can blame them for that or we can listen to them, right? Yeah. And say like, well, what if brunch is also a really wonderful thing and we can find other ways to yeah. uh, to connect and grow and be together. So Absolutely. I like it. Yeah. Well, and hopefully this makes you feel a little better about your sound system. I have, you know, a nice speaker like that. My churches are great with their like 1998 boombox, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. in the corner. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about your book. You have a new book coming out, which is so exciting. And I really want to hear what's your why, what's your why behind writing this particular book? There's a few probably, but I've got kiddos of my own and all these years with kiddos in churches and the model for so long has been to tell these kids that there's a God who wants them to obey. And then we sort of assumed that if they obeyed right, they would like see that that was good. And then they would grow into trusting the God who gave them all the rules. And then, you know, they'd grow up to be adults who trust God. And it so doesn't work. It so doesn't work. And I'm, 40 now, my peers were raised in that. We know that what it actually led to was a sense that our faith is about trying to be more good and less bad and manage the do and don't lists. And it either made us exhausted or heartbroken. The more I thought about who I hoped my kids would meet when they got to know God, the more it was that that obedience training model has to die. And we've got to think about a totally different paradigm where we give kids more space and time and stories and experiences of getting to know God and assuming God is also going to be more complex and more mysterious and that that's an, an always ongoing sort of thing, that that's what's normative. It's like we're getting to know God because God can be trusted and that's going to always keep changing. But we, we didn't have any models for that. Um, there aren't like, that's not like how the kids' Bibles works and the family devotion products don't work. And so that's what I wanted to start to write to was like, why might that be a better way? And how do we actually do it in real life and real families? Um, and so out came Woven. Mm, that's beautiful. I've had several adults walk into my churches being like, I really need to untangle some messy theology about like, who I'm supposed to be. And, you know, I also have talked to folks who are like, we want to bring our kids to church because we want them to learn how to live right. And I was like, 
let's have a conversation about like, we're just, we're just here to learn about a God who loves us. And I feel like you do that so well. Thank you. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, for a long time, when people first started wringing their hands about young people leaving the church, mm-hmm. one of the things they would point to was the so-called return rate of people who, once they were partnered and had children, would bring those children back for that reason. We just want them to kind of have a foundation or like to learn to live right. The assumption was like, that's what church is offering is this morality training and that the church can like be a companion and helping your kid be a good kid. And that's the part where I'm like, nah, not a, I'm not, I'm not here to help you do that anymore. Uh, I, I, I would love for my kids to be caring and compassionate and justice oriented and all those things, but also I want them to know it's going to be okay if they don't, or if they're clumsy learning it, or when they actually act like a selfish jerk, like we're going to find a way forward in that. And um, because of who God is, because of who God is. Because that's who we are as adults too, right? Like (laughs) we're sometimes little jerks as adults. Always, always. Yes, exactly. I was talking to a class about Christian marriage and I was like, so you pick a person and you say, I'm going to try and treat you Christ-like as best I can and not, can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, please. Because yeah. I did in the class. I was like, and, and not be a dick. And then sometimes I'm going to be a dick and I'm going to apologize to you and we're going to try and mend it over and over again for as long as we can, hopefully forever. There's an assumption of imperfection because that's what we actually mean by grace. And the obedience training model for kids, the go be a good kid, that's fake grace. Yeah. I've had this conversation a few times around shame, right? Like, so I love Brene Brown's research and stuff on shame. And I think it really needs to be applied to faith-based structures, right? Because mm-hmm. she talks all the time about how shame does not create lasting change. Yes, and absolutely. The obedience model is largely based on shame. Yes, and we're shame wondering and fear. why, yeah. And then we lose young adults because they feel ashamed. Yep. And are tired of feeling that way. <laughs> yeah. Go yeah. figure. You know, it's yeah. how do we, how do we create a loving space where people are welcomed in with love? Like you said, whether you're a good quote unquote, good kid or a bad kid, good adult, bad adult, whatever it is, how do we create a space where they know that they are, they're loved? Yep. And what happens if that love was the thing that could then inform who they were becoming and how they would be in the world and how they treat others. But mm-hmm. like, really, really we're anchored in the love first. We're not trying to like use that, like you're loved. And so go (laughs) do like, which, you know, depending on where folks have come from, it's, it's really a full paradigm shift and, um, the pull back to the scripts that keep saying like, here's your behaviors, get the behaviors, right. It's hard. It's a lot to untangle. Yeah. Yeah. I love the title of your book that it's, woven and you talk about a faith your kid doesn't have to heal from because I feel like not only does that speak to the kid but like I think it speaks to the parent who had to heal from faith is that part of why you chose that title absolutely because there are so many parents doing healing work and I think that is so honorable and it's important to recognize like to whatever degree an adult is doing that like they just deserve all the tenderness and time that they need. And there is a way to invite your kid into faith, maybe even a little before you're ready, so that they have an experience of their own. A big part of, 
I think where that tagline resonated when I first wrote it was people recognizing that one of the things that hurt them was that they weren't allowed to change. Mm -hmm. That everything had to be so sure and firm and certain. And then they had these questions that, uh, that were received with fear or they encountered new ideas and nobody was able to walk with them through that. So to be able to say there's ways for your kid to have a faith that is always growing and changing, where that's the expectation. So we're not afraid of the changes, even though sometimes they're uncomfortable or new. And by being ready for them, that's part of how we're not gonna, as best we can, hurt our kids. We're not giving them something unflinchingly rigid that they have to accept or face not only a rejection of us, but also a God. We're giving them the chance to know a person and an expectation that the process of getting to know that person and, and shape your life with that person is going to be dynamic and, and flexible the whole way through. Yeah. I think that touches on, you talked about spiral learning mm, recently, yeah. and I know you touched on that in your book that it's, it's coming back to again and again. And I feel like that's how we get to know people too, right? Like even Always. our spouses, like we come to know them again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about somebody new and they'll tell you something and then you'll run into them a little while later and be like, remind me of that thing again. Like, remind me when your birthday was, what did you do for that? And they tell you a story about how they celebrated and you learn more about them and what they like and what they think is fun. And it's always adding layers. And spiral learning is a, like an education theory. It's actually the classroom folks that, you know, came up with that, but they break their curriculum into these pieces, one small idea at a time. And then you come back pretty quickly on and you add complexity through repetition. You never try to do one and done. You always assume that you're adding layer by layer. And that's, I think, a really helpful way to consider what faith might mean for young people, that you start with simpler things or the themes of the Bible that are clear for kids to see about God's character. And yeah, there's more. And yeah, there's some hard stuff, but you can like give it time and do the small stuff first. And eventually you get to the complex stuff. You don't have to hurry it along. You just go bit by bit. You mean we shouldn't start with Noah's Ark? I, we, I would love if we just never told young children Noah's Ark. That would be great. That'd be great. <laughs> because that plays into the obedience, right? Of like the people were bad and so God wiped them off the earth. So you should be good. Yeah. Like Noah. Yeah. Obey like Noah. Mm -hmm. It's such a good example of a story that gets told in order to tell kids to be good kids, to feature a human that we think, you know, does what we want our kids to do and listens and acts how they were told. I think adults like that story because it's a way to say their kids should be compliant <laughs> to put themselves in the role of the voice of God. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's tempting, right? It's really so tempting. tempting. I mm -hmm. mean, there is a part of us that knows that compliant children are convenient. Mm. I do not have compliant children. That's not their personality. But man, if you spiritualize that, if you call that sin instead of personality or growth or learning to be human or learning to cooperate, it you know, you can create a whole thing as a parent that keeps everyone in line and sort of, you don't have to do the messy negotiation of I am your grown up, and your voice matters. And all those are that's longer, it's so much longer. Let's just talk about being obedient like Noah. Yeah, yeah. But I think it comes back to that piece of, are we creating short term change? Or are we creating a long term relationship, right? Like right. shame and obedience create short term change, but that then they get to be 17, you yep. know, or 29 or 42. Like it doesn't, 
I feel like it doesn't stick in the way that that long-term slower work does. I absolutely agree. And a lot of what exists in certain models for kids is very much short-term. I mean, it's like, how can you apply this Bible story this week? And the assumption has also sort of been that like scripture is not relevant unless you do it that way. Like unless there's something to go do with it immediately, then kids will be bored by it or not think it matters for their life. And to your point, when you shift to a long-term relationship, then this grand story of all these people trying to figure out who this God is and whether they're worth trusting is always relevant. They feel all the things we feel and they're walking through all the things we're walking through in a different time and place. But that time and place is also really interesting and kind of weird sometimes. And so there's all kinds of relevance when we move into that long view because the big questions we carry are shared. Hmm. How would you say curiosity plays into this framework? My pastor friend, Sarah Schwarzendruber, is the one who tells the kids in her church, using your skill of curiosity, I want to know what you wonder about this story. And she always calls it their skill of curiosity. That when they interrupt and wonder, but why that? And why not that? And like, but what? It, why couldn't it just be this other way? That that is their skill of curiosity that keeps them from just accepting what is being handed to them without engaging their own minds. And it honors the fact that like their critical thinking and their wonderings and their silliness, it all matters to how they engage the story. Um, this last Sunday, the kids in our church were looking at um, when Jesus raises Jairus's daughter and the interruption with a hemorrhaging woman along the way. And they got to the end when the girl has woken up and uh, the storyteller stopped and she said to the group, so what do you think Jesus said first? And then just stopped. And the guesses, the curiosity about like, so what could it have been? And it was everything from like something realistic to and serious to like just, you know, all the silly things that get them giggling, but they never expected it to be, get her a snack. Then they started playing around with what Jesus's voice was like, get her a snack, you know, and just being so silly. But that was the moment of curiosity. Like, let me stop and let you get curious about this thing we don't know. What, what's he going to say now? When the kids came back into the main room for dinner, I wasn't in with them. That's the story I heard was we were having so much fun pretending to be Jesus saying, get her a snack. And they were doing all their voice impersonations again. And it's like, well, that's not, what's that going to do to make you a good kid tomorrow? That he said, get her a snack. It's like, or what does it do to tell you something about Jesus's ability to like take care of all the needs, yeah. big and small? Well, and it connects to such a like human part of us too, right? Like how many of us, when we, I don't know about being raised, you know, from sickness or near death, but like, <laughs> I, I imagine I'd be hungry because I'm hungry <laughs> when I wake up from a nap, you know, yes. and kids, kids know that. Yeah. yeah. Snacks cover all kinds of things with grace. <laughs> they are, yes. they are amazingly powerful. Yeah. What's that verse? Love covers a multitude of sins. Uh -huh. Snacks cover a multitude of desires. <laughs> they do. They do. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, talk about God-centered storytelling. I know that's a phrase that you often use. Tell us a little yeah. bit about yeah. what that is and why it's important. What it is, is a way we can approach Bible stories that helps us if we're shifting from obedience training paradigms into trust-based ones. It's a strategy we can grab, which is simply that as there is a Bible story we're going to share with a kid, we stop to look at what the story says about who God is or what God's like. 
if we're the storyteller, you know, we might notice that there's like a list of options. God's often many things in the story. So we usually, as the adult, then pick one. And then as we tell the story to kids, we let God be the main character and sort of allow our interpretations and our storytelling to highlight that thing about what God is being. We help them notice it if it's in the actual you know, text of the Bible. We sort of notice the phrases that point that out as we tell the plot of the story. Um, we let God be the main character. And then I think one of the wonderful things about that is all the humans get to just be regular humans. They don't have to be heroes we copy or anti-heroes that we need to learn lessons from. They get to be people. And that means that wherever they got things quote unquote right or wrong, we go back to, and how did God respond to that? And what did God do with that? Like our church right now is going through Exodus and there's a point in the story where God has come to the people to say, I'm gonna save you, I'm gonna redeem you, I'm gonna bring you to the land. And at this point, the plagues are such that Pharaoh just keeps doubling down on power and nothing's happening. And Exodus says that the people um, were so discouraged by the burden of their slavery that they couldn't hear the word of Yahweh through Moses. And then you get this question of like, and then what did God do next? And it's that God sent Moses back to Pharaoh to one up Pharaoh one more time. God's response to them being so dismayed and utterly rejecting this promise was not to be upset. How dare you? Do you know who you're talking to? God's response was like, okay, I'll show you. Okay, I'll fight for you. Okay, I'm going back in against the empire on y'all's behalf because I see your suffering. That just changes the idea that Moses is heroic for being so obedient with the message or Aaron, or that the people were bad for what they couldn't believe at that time. It makes sense that they would feel that way. And what matters most is how God continues to be the one who will free and save. And you can do that over and over with the various stories through scripture. And it's, I think, especially with kids, having that be the first way they hear stories, where it's like, these are stories about God. Even being able to ask them that, like, hey, what'd you notice about who God is or what God's like at the end? They come up with all kinds of fun answers. And so, I think it's the simplest strategy that invites us back into scripture, which is often the place where a lot of us got tangled in the first place, with the Bible got used as a weapon, that invites us back in in a way that would nurture something more like trust and invite us into the idea that we explore this book together. Um, mm. It doesn't just give us rules. Yeah. And I think it reframes some of the, the people I know who are raised on obedience training will read some of the Old Testament scriptures and feel like, well, this is a God who's wrathful and angry and da, da, da. And it gets into the anti-Semitic land of theology. And I feel like God-centered storytelling allows us to say like, what does this say about God? Mm -hmm. You know, is God hurt in this moment? Like, how is God feeling? And I, I feel like it totally reframes some of that, like if we know that God is all loving and good, and it says all throughout the Old Testament, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What does that say about this moment? I feel like that's creates such a huge impact for adults when we get to those more complex texts. Yes, absolutely. Because a lot of times when you've given yourself that process, you see how it's a last resort. You see how because God works with people and even within human culture, then there's God's self limits. 
right? And so there's some degree to things being the way they are for that reason, because empires are going to empire and power is going to cling to power. And you see things like, oh, there's violence because sometimes ending badness, which is part of God's goodness, is really messy and sorrowful. And that rings true to us adults when we look at the world. Um, You know, the United States Civil War. War is a bad thing that brings all kinds of terrible side effects. And it would probably be one of the times that we would say it does seem like it might have been inevitable to end the greater evil of enslavement. And it was imperfect in the way in which it brought that about. But we see that trying to end one evil sometimes is also still hard and bad and a mess in our world. And then we come back to a God who works within the people and doesn't just mow them down. And it's like, well, it might be that part of these hard things find a little more of a home in that kind of a mess of how, do, how does one end badness? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And what would it say about God if God just never ended badness? Is that what we would really want? Is that sort of sometimes the the nice little hippie privilegey place where some of us who don't experience a lot of badness are like, oh, I just feel like we should like sit and hold hands. <laughs> Maybe some of our siblings who are more marginalized would be like, I feel like sometimes we need a little power. Yeah. Thank you for that perspective. I think it's really helpful. And I feel like with your, the work of your book, it's not just, I'm going to come back to the title a little bit, right? Like it's not just about teaching adults who are parents who have young kids who are like raising them. I think a lot of what your work will do is speak to those adults who need some healing too, who need a reframe of scripture. I hope so, because I think that's part of why sometimes we're not sure what to do. It's that we need some time and space to settle these things before we move forward with the kids in our life. And so the second part of the book, each chapter picks one attribute of God. And I just grabbed a list of things that I think are kind of core markers. They're not like be all end all. It's not like the ultimate, but I just grabbed six that I think are really central to the themes of scripture and also that can be challenging and do need some untangling, right? Like uh, God is powerful is one of the chapters. And part of that is about what do we say to our kids when they don't feel like their prayer is answered. But part of that is like, what do we do with the fact that we sort of know God isn't a genie, but then sort of don't know what that means. We tell our kids about why we pray and like, but then also like, do I pray anymore? Or am I sort of in a place where I don't know that that does or means anything? And so working through the attribute is a bit about, here's some ways you might think about helping your kid anchor to this piece of God's character. And also here's some space for you to revisit your relationship to this attribute of God. Um, And hopefully the two being settled together is, is part of why it's useful for folks. Yeah. I love that. Can you speak to what is, what is your ultimate hope for this book and the impact it'll have? I know it's a big question, but. I mean, I would love for the obedience training model to die and for us (laughs) to completely reimagine that we raise young people so that they can get to know God and discover if God is trustworthy and that we give them the time and the space and the experiences that would help them with the long view in mind. I would love to flip the switch on that. Yet, if I'm being a little more realistic, I'd love for a reader who has kids in their life 
to feel confident that they can do that for their context, even if the machine that wants obedient, compliant children keeps humming for however long until forevermore because it has the money to do that. But that they would feel really settled in why they're not going to do that. Thank you very much. And that it would make this space that often feels pressured and like get it just right and fear-based and shamey, like that they would find themselves able to turn that noise off and be like, no, we're going to pick this way for our family because this is who we are. These are our kiddos. This is our theological perspective. And we, we get to do this this way. There are a hundred great ways to be a family following Jesus together. And so we're picking this one, whether it looks like anyone else or not. I love that. My last question before we get to a lightning round, and I've been loving asking people this, is what are you still learning, Meredith? Well, I'm learning how to do butterfly pull-ups in CrossFit, and I'm not good at it. (laughs) And I know that's sort of a silly thing, but I actually do really like that when you do certain kinds of movement, it makes you a beginner again, and you're kind of bad at something for a while, and you realize you're okay being bad at something. It, you know, in a deep way, it kind of reminds you that that's okay and that you can yeah. do it because you like it, not because you got to get good at something. Mm. Um, I'm learning if the way I eat affects some joint pain I've been having in my hands in the last couple of months that was new to me and um, how might the gift of food maybe help make that a little better and how can I experiment with that well and coming uh you know, out of an era raised just the world around us, the water we swim in makes relating to food funky. And you always are finding yourself re-healing, right? <laughs> to, to that one. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> um, and I'm learning how to uh, listen to what my kids want more when it comes to their faith journeys, I would say. Um, they're getting big enough to have a lot more voice in how they want to do faith stuff. And sometimes that's more or less or different than what my husband or I might have as kind of the plan in our head. Um, but it's always been really good. And so we're, we're learning how to follow their lead a little more and finding that often it's, um, humor. Like they read Calvin and Hobbes every night before bed. We're on like, I don't even know our third time through the entire printed collection that we have in like a giant volume. Yeah. But Bill Watterson has written in a bunch of stuff that is sort of faith adjacent. You know, Calvin makes these theological quips that are punchlines and my kids want to know why it's funny or they get that it's funny because it's not God or like there's every now and again, it's a pretty regular thing that uh, Calvin pontificates on the mysteries of the universe. And then there's like this one minute debrief of the strip because our kids think it was funny or they don't get why it was funny. That also is something clarifying about like, but for real is God like that? Right. Cause Calvin's view of God is, is very <laughs> obedience training oriented that uh, you gotta be a good kid. God's like Santa and Calvin in Hobbes world. <laughs> and um, there's often a lot of humor that's leading us to clarifying the more genuine goodness of our God through that. I love that. That's so good. <laughs> okay. Well, are you ready for some lightning round? I will try my best. Okay. Finish the sentence. God is at home in the slave camps of Goshen. And I know that's such a weird and pastory and churchy thing to say, so I'm sorry. But again, like our church is in Exodus right now. And so last week, my husband talked about how God doesn't get co-opted by power in this whole thing. Like how all throughout Egypt, there's gods that 
are like conveniently at home in the palace and conveniently are voiced by the king. And how much of the story of Exodus is that Yahweh God of Israel goes into Goshen and picks them and just chooses them. And that is home. And where, what does that invite all the rest of us into? It just, if mm. that's where, if that's where God is pleased to dwell. So that's the one I'm thinking through right now. I love that. Oh, I want to listen to your guys' sermons now. Okay. Favorite verse or story in the Bible today? Oh, that thing with Jairus's daughter, because it's what we did last week, because you have Jairus with a lot more social capital and power. And you have this woman who has been hemorrhaging forever, who has none whatsoever. And Jesus does both. I think we always wanted to be like, look at the woman and her space as someone who's been pushed to the sidelines and how he brings her in. But you can't forget that he still takes care of Jairus, even though he comes from the more powerful privileged place. He doesn't turn away. He does both and. And I just think that's cool. Yeah. It's not convenient at no. all. What are you currently reading? A lot of happy fiction that is a little bit like transportive. So I just finished like a fiction piece where three friends split a lottery ticket and win. And it's like three different novels and it's each one of them in the like year after that happens and like uh -huh. their life. And um, I've read a lot of Ellen Hildebrand who sets all of her novels on Nantucket in giant houses that are far away. And it just feels like somewhere else. I've just been reading tons of fiction set in places that I don't live where I can be in my imagination. And they're so fun. They're like movies, only quiet. <laughs> That's the description of books I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, if you could share a Last Supper style meal with your closest friends, um, kind of like Jesus did, what would you have on the table? What would be the meal? We live around a lot of good food. So I would probably pull in, we have a taqueria on the corner that does great refried beans. But then the taqueria on the other side of the street does great al pastor. And then the pupusaria around the corner. So I would just like make a little lap and then bring them all back. <laughs> and that's what that we do all of those. Because yeah. they're just they're just a mile apart. So they can come to the we have time to get them all to the table. Perfect. That's amazing. Uh, what do you love about Jesus? Oh goodness, everything. I mean, probably to the story that's sitting in my favorite spot right now. The it's everybody part of him, right? We're doing Jairus and we're doing this woman, even if it means we're stopping for the interruption when she comes through the crowd. And also we're going to walk into the mocking group and say, no, I can, I can be in this situation too. And it, it's everybody. Yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. What do you know for sure? That... <laughs> that bacon and diet Coke and cream cheese frosting are as much a proof of God's goodness as anything else. Oh, yes. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> All right. Final question, Meredith, what is filling your well right now? Well, so right this moment is summer and we have had a really good one and it has been years since I think we would say it's been a good summer for our family. Not because everything was hard and awful, but just, um, the, the way life had to work for a lot of us and the challenges that came. And if we, I had kids in my house and this is our first summer in years where we've been able to build like a more joyful, sustainable rhythm for the season. And we're kind of 
about seven weeks in and about three weeks to go for us. And it's like, oh, we, we did it. We started at the beginning and said, here's a season and how can we like live well together in it? And we did. And that's just been fun to see. Like, so we've had a fun summer, but also like, I just kind of feel proud of us for like trusting that very thing of like, what if, what if the way we are a family together is a-okay, whether it looks like anyone else or not. And so it's been, yeah, very filling for this season. Wow. That's amazing. I love that for you. I know so many parents who talk about how hard summer is because, you know, the routine and the structure and yes, yeah, that's beautiful. It is. It's very challenging. And, you know, we have a culture that doesn't have a lot of options for how you do jobs and how your kids have good experiences while those jobs get done. And, um, it, it just takes a lot of creativity and it can, yeah, it's so tricky. I'm so grateful that we finally came to a season where our kids' independence meets our creativity and we got, we got a good one. So I'm going to enjoy it. Good. Good. Well, before we close out, can you tell people where can they find your book and where can they find you if they want to connect with you? Yep. So, uh, the book is available anywhere that books are sold. You can read chapter one ahead and get a little flavor for it and see if that might be a fit as well. And, um, and then everything else, if you head to MeredithAnnMiller.com, that's where you could sign up for the monthly newsletter if you'd like, or um, find a link to the book, or see what's going on on Instagram, where I mainly still write, because I still love that it's short and free, which I think is important on both ends. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you just not only for what you do, Meredith, but who you are. You're just a gift, and I'm grateful for you. And thank you for your time and for this book. I'm really excited to read it and share it with everybody I know. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been really fun to talk. My friend, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so grateful for you. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. The Lady Preacher podcast is part of a nonprofit called Dancing Pastor Ministries. And you can find us online at dancingpastor.org or join the community by finding us on Facebook at Dancing Pastor Ministries. If you would like to be a part of supporting this podcast, there are many ways you can do that without giving monetarily. You can share our posts on social media, send an episode to a friend, or just leave a review. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so at dancingpastor.org slash give. My friend, you are a gift. Thank you for being here and God bless.